Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of April 22nd, 2019. I just want to quickly congratulate Rob for those that have always wondered, who is Rob the majestic voice of our intro and P.O. Sox is from Rob Hart, who anchors the news on 780 AM WBBM in Chicago. He's a huge White Sox fan. He's been a wonderful mentor and supporter of this show. And he and his wife just welcomed in their third daughter, Gwen, to the world this past weekend. Sounds like mom is in great shape. Dad is beyond happy. And White Sox Nation gains another fan so congratulations to the Hart family, and we hope that everyone had a great Easter and Passover weekend. On this week's show, we'll recap the Detroit series as the White Sox lost two out of three against the Tigers, a mixture of poor pitching in game one and two late of an offensive charge in game three were the problems, but there are some positives to take away from this series. We'll discuss those and preview the upcoming series as the White Sox continue their road trip to Baltimore. Plus, we'll recap the week that was in the minor leagues and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Before we recap the Chicago White Sox and Detroit Tigers series, let's take a look at the league as a whole and some hot starts that have that might have some merit to them. I know we always say it's early, things can change, but sometimes things don't change and the hot teams stay hot all season long and the same with players as what teams have improved their playoff odds greatly and which players that are off to a hot start uh, could have really big seasons in 2019. Well, helping us to decipher that is our best friend of the podcast. You can read his writing at fangraphs.com 
It's Dan Zaborski. And hello, Dan. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Josh. How's it going today? Oh, it's uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, that, that last... was a sarcastic response, I, I, I wager. <laughs> just, a, just a bit. Uh, to pull the curtain back, uh, like Wizard of Oz, we are recording this as the news just came out that Tim Anderson uh, has been suspended for a game. Rick Renteria has been suspended for a game. And Brad Keller gets five games. And I, I have to ask, Dan, because... This isn't the first time it's happened this season. We had the whole Chris Archer incident in Pittsburgh against Derek Dietrich, uh, where he watched his home run go into the river. And then the next time he gets up to bat, Archer throws behind him in Chicago. Anderson hits a home run, flips his bat, gets hit in the next at bat by Brad Keller. What are your thoughts about how Major League Baseball are is handling these situations with pitcher retaliations after home runs? especially after these two cases so far in 2019. It's it's a completely hapless situation. MLB's never really taken it seriously. They give just, you know, just lip service to the idea of, you know, professionalizing the game. Even in football, which is a sport, which is, you know, every place, most plays, people are getting tackled physically. Uh, they ignored concussions, you know, for decades, and they still do a better job enforcing these things if 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 someone charged if a lineman charged at the other team's huddle and you know kicked the quarterback or something there would be some pretty severe consequences while the uh the uh, major league baseball major league baseball would say oh five games uh and it's it's a bullshit five games too because he's a starting pitcher so what's going to happen is he's going to appeal and then he's going to drop the appeal at a portion of the schedule where the White Sox have uh, an off day. So he's not even going to miss a start. So Tim Anderson's going to miss more games than Brad Keller will. Uh, and, of course, Renteria is going to miss more games than Ned Yost will. And I think in a situation where managers oversee a player's actions, managers have to bear the responsibility. Yost should have the longest punishment of all of these uh, – all, all the all – the f- actors in this situation because he clearly approves of it. He lied about it at the press conference. We saw afterwards when Hunter Dozier said what they actually did. Uh, I think a fairer punishment is that Keller should be out for 30 days. Yost should be penalized for 60 days. And the Royals should be warned that if something like this happens again, they lose draft picks. I think that's the kind of punishment that baseball should have for what is – thuggery essentially okay so let me play devil's advocate because if royals fans are listening to this they're going to say that is way way too harsh of penalties but i agree with you dan that the part the penalties have to be harsher than five games because oh boy brad keller's next start is delayed one day but if you're suggesting 30 days and 60 days, 30 days for the player, 60 days for the manager, is that too too severe of a punishment, especially for a team's chances of winning? I don't think so because it's not something you that happens by accident. Chris Davis was suspended for 25 games for being bad at paperwork for his medicine. If someone can get 25 games for that, then someone committing intentional violence – and I don't mean – Every situation where a hitter is plunked, plunked after something good happened to them, I think that you'd want a, 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 some some burden of proof on it. Some look at the facts of the situation, how it came across. 
I think it was pretty blatant in this case what it, what exactly happened. Uh, I don't think there was any kind of uncertainty about it. Now, maybe you say, okay, we don't do it this time because they didn't know ahead of time. But it's important for baseball to put its foot down on this nonsense. They had this whole thing about, you know, let the kids play and celebrating having fun with baseball. And, and Tim Anderson was having fun. He was having fun and he enjoyed being a player. Yeah, he talked a little smack, but that's usually within the realms of acceptability. Uh, I'm talking, of course, before the uh, the, the plunking. I don't want to talk because he was suspended for a word that might have been racial as this comes across the, the wire. I don't want to exactly condone that. Uh, but I, I think that Baseball gets no benefit from this and everything to lose. I, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a good situation for baseball. No, it's 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 most definitely not. And as I tweeted out, you can go ahead and pull those let the kids play commercials because it's a lie. Yeah, I mean, just and, and in the last, you know, I guess it's 48 hours almost now. It's been a flood of of, you know, ex players talking about, well, if, if someone mouths off to me, they get a hundred mile per hour fastball in the jaw like Aubrey Huff being an idiot uh, although uh, Amir Garrett had a good take on it uh, I don't know if you've seen his his posts on Twitter but yeah it's baseball I mean one of baseball's best things about it is that it has such a rich history but sometimes that's also one of the worst things about baseball because then baseball can never really move forward to things they have to be stuck being run th- things being run the same way, be run like 1930s sometimes, with you know these these unwritten rules and just general stuff that is unacceptable in a professional game. And if baseball started up today, then they would never allow these things to to take uh, to get into place. And 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 I can't think of the word, but just to be too much of a part of the sport, it, it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, it's too businesslike, and. Business is not fun. That's why we watch baseball, so we're not thinking about work. Oh, but it's not even business. I don't know when it's when it's when it's good business to to uh, you know hurt someone, unless I guess you're like a bounty hunter or something. Like I know that when I had a dispute with an editor, they never threw anything at me before, even when I was at actual ESPN or wherever when I was actually at the building. I don't think uh, like I used to complain about them taking away my Oxford commas, <laughs> but I don't think I don't think Christina Carl or or uh, Matt Myers or Brendan Roberts, my editors at ESPN, I don't think anything would have thrown a staple at my face or something uh, to object to my objection. Well, maybe they but should have now in retrospect. <laughs> in, in hindsight, my mom always asks me, she says, Danny, how did you never how have you never gotten beaten up by someone? <laughs> I was like, thanks, mom. I she's like, it'd probably be good for you. I'm like, thanks, mom. I'm gonna pick your nursing home. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. Oh, okay. So let's move on away from the current situation, or I'm gonna have another meltdown. Uh, I want to take a look at the major league standings because I know it's really early. But sometimes these hot starts do normalize, and this is where we can identify surprise teams that we're talking about in July and August and September. And then all of a sudden they're in the postseason. And I want to start in the American league East because I think there's two stories in this division, right? Well, three stories in this division right now. One, a good story is the hot start that the Tampa Bay Rays are on. I don't necessarily agree with their methods on how they build their team, uh, Dan, because I think that they're being cheap for the sake of being cheap 
too often, uh, but they're off to a, a tremendous start. And this tremendous start, I've noticed on fan graphs with the projected standings, has really boosted their odds of winning the division over the New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox because the Yankees, with the number of injuries they're having, but I want to start this conversation with Boston. Do you have any idea on what is going on with the Red Sox? Because as we are recording this right now, they are allowing more runs per game than the White Sox, and White Sox fans know that the pitching has been terrible. Yeah, that's that's a hard question. Uh, I mean, when you see a, a, a poor start to the season, usually you can like dig through things. I just I just wrote a piece digging through Aaron Nola's uh, rather weak start. Mm-hmm. But the Red Sox, they're such a mystery because so many players have just been terrible. I mean, I know it's still April, and I always say April is my answer to everything, but it's still weird to see Homer Bailey having a better season than Chris Sale. In, in 2019, it, it that's bad. It's it's alternate universe stuff. It's like if this was an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, uh, and and they saw that they'd say, "Oh God, something has changed in the past," and then they'd, they'd go back in time and you know fix the problem, and 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 everything would just go back to the way it was. Uh, but really, I mean, the entire rotation except for David Price has been just pretty much garbage. Uh, and that's a problem for the Red Sox because they're not really a deep franchise. They don't have uh, a really good minor league system at, at present time. They don't have a lot of reinforcements. And it's hard to reinforce you know, someone like Chris Sale because if you're not putting him on the disabled list, it's not like he's going to go to the minors or something. Uh, I, I, think, I think that they're be- a lot better than they are, but they're kind of running out of time to turn around because the, the farther you let yourself get back, the, you know, the faster you have to run to catch up. I always use the example when we talk about early season records, uh, me having a, a race with Hussein Bolt. Now, Hussein Bolt can run a lot faster than me, but there is a lead you can give me in which I can beat him in a race. It's a pretty big lead, but the, the, there is a point where he says, hey, you know, you can't catch – you can't run 1,000 yards or 100 yards – or no, it's 1,000. Uh, no, it's 100 yards, right? 100-yard dash. 100-meter no, dash. 100-meters, 100 – I, I forgot we all – it's metric now. Uh, I like, you know, hogsheads and gallons and all that. But uh, I, it, I, I can – I mean I'm not fast and I'm out of shape and I never really was that fast when I was in shape. But I can run, you know, 10 meters uh, faster than Usain Bolt can run 100 meters pretty easily. So you give me a big enough lead, I am going to beat him in a race. And the difference between the Rays and the Red Sox are a lot smaller than between my fat ass and, and Usain Bolt. Uh, I think that going into the season, there were good reasons to believe that the Yankees, uh, especially, and the Red Sox were better than the Rays. But when you look at the standings right now, uh, the, the the wins that the Rays have, those are baked into the cake at this point. At this point, at the start of the season, the Red Sox only had to be one game better than the Rays over 162 games to to you know beat them for the season and probably make the playoffs. But now to to pass the Rays in the standings, they have to be nine games better over like 140 games. And that's a much larger challenge because, well, I thought the Red Sox were better than the Rays going into the season. I don't think that they're like 11 games better on a 162-game basis. Uh, I never did. I know Zips had the Red Sox had like 92 wins coming this season. And I I think the Rays were in the mid-80s. I probably should look this up while I'm talking. So I – so uh I actually have the data, but I, I think 
the Red Sox especially had to be very concerned about their start. I think the Yankees have a better excuse than the Red Sox do. So looking at – and staying in the American League, looking at the American League West, a couple surprises. The Seattle Mariners, obviously with their offensive juggernaut of a lineup <laughs> to start the year, uh, and the Texas Rangers, both teams are above 500. If you had to pick one of those two teams, I'm not saying that they're going to compete with the Houston Astros – or even the Oakland Athletics, but which start is more believable and can last longer between Seattle and Texas? I think to agree, the, the Mariners, uh, the Rangers are still not done their kind of skinny rebuild. Uh, the Mariners, they're not a great team, but I think people overrated just how bad the team was uh, after the trades this offseason. Uh, yeah, they, they they do miss, you know, having James Paxton. They, they do miss... Uh, Having these are the players they trade away. They'd love to have Edwin Diaz, but the players they have aren't really that terrible. Uh, you look at their lineup from top to bottom; it's mostly major league capable players. Uh, I mean, Edwin Encarnacion is not really that great anymore. D. Gordon isn't. Uh, uh, Ryan Healy isn't really probably. Omar Navias has defensive concerns, but they're legitimate major league players. Uh, it's not like an Orioles situation or a Marlins situation. There's there's competency out there. Uh, now, I tend to think that the Mariners are probably closer to being a 500 team, uh, which means, you know, they'll probably look somewhere like 83, 84 wins, somewhere around there uh, based on the start. Uh, but I think that they're closer to having a pleasant surprise to push them towards a wild card than the Rangers are. Just I don't think the Rangers are that good. And in the American League Central – do you think the Twins have a legit chance of beating out the Cleveland Indians? They do. It depends how lazy the Indians have been. Uh, it would kind of serve the Indians right if they lost to the Twins. Uh, I I really wasn't a fan of either team's offseason, but the Indians especially did such a poor job addressing their outfield needs. Uh, I always get on the Rockies for having an offense that's based on two guys having MVP seasons and a bunch of just lousiness around them. But the Indians lineup is, is, is quite similar. Uh, they need to have Lindor and Ramirez having MVP seasons because the rest of the lineup really isn't that good. Uh, I know Carlos Santana has had a good start, but he's also a player entering his mid thirties who has, wasn't really good last year and not really that great in his last year with the Indians the year before that. Uh, I don't think it's a good offense and that gives the twins more of a window. Uh, the problem with the Twins, of course, is that they also they didn't take advantage this offseason of India of the Indians' kind of lackadaisical approach to building their team. Uh, they actually have a smaller payroll than they did in 2018. Uh, this would have been a perfect time to you know take that Joe Maurer money, invest in the team, go after Bryce Harper or or Manny Machado. The Padres were able to do it. There's no reason the Twins can't. Uh, I they're when you look like an 80 to 85 win team, extra wins for a team in that window are just enormous. And, you know, they brought in Marwin Gonzalez and they brought in Nelson Cruz. But I I think they could have been a little, little more ambitious. Yep. Yep. We'll see. I don't know. I put some money on the Twins. They were at plus 200 as far as Vegas odds on winning the American League Central and the start that Cleveland is having and they should be getting Francisco Lindor pretty soon, but Corey Kluber is not Klubot at the moment, and injuries always come up. And uh, I think it'll be a lot tight, a lot tighter of a race than we were expecting in the American League Central. 
Moving over to the National League, the National League East, I think, is going to have a lot of eyes in this division because I believe the race is always going to be close. The Phillies are ahead right now, but if you're looking at Fangraph's projected standings, Fangraph still likes the Nationals to win the National League East. Uh, Do you think it's going to be this tight? It's going to be a four-team race all the way through 2019, Dan? I think so. I mean, there's always a chance that one team has some bad, nasty surprises over the course of the season because, you know, pitchers break, stuff like that. And the the depth from team to team varies pretty wildly. Uh, I I, I don't think really there's a favorite right now. It's it's just that it's a close race uh, between the the four teams that we knew were going to be competitive. Obviously, the Marlins aren't part of this calculation. (laughs) No. Uh, No, they are not. And in the National League Central, as we're recording this, a bit of a surprise via win percentage, the Pirates are leading the National League Central. Uh, And obviously, we've seen the Milwaukee Brewers and just the pace that Christian Yelich has been. Uh, Do you believe that the Pirates could stick around long in this race? And when are the Cubs and Cardinals going to make their surge to the top? Uh, I I think they can stick around. I don't think there's any dominating team in the NL Central. I'd still probably put the Pirates below the other non-Reds teams. Uh, But really, there's only two and a half games right now separating the Pirates from the Cubs as we record this. Uh, I think that the Reds are too far back. I, I think that they needed to... Be a little more surprising. Uh, the team hasn't been very good. They had a really wretched start. And it's hard to dig a hole, dig yourself out of a hole when you have four other teams in the division that are very good, or at least, you know, above average-ish. Uh, we'll, we'll call the Pirates average. So, say, three above average teams and one average-ish team. Uh, I, I think it will be a close race. I don't. I think in the end it'll be between the Brewers and the Cubs with the Cardinals just a smidgen behind. Uh but really, like the NL East, I wouldn't be surprised at any of those top four teams winning their division. I would be surprised if the Reds did. Now, San Diego, they are having a good start, one that I think White Sox fans would be a bit jealous of because we're watching highlights almost daily of Fernando Tatis Jr. and Manny Machado uh, making spectacular plays. Uh, do you think they have lasting power uh, to at least compete for a wild card spot, maybe not stay toe-to-toe with the Dodgers all season. Yeah, I think the Dodgers are likely to put some space uh, between themselves and the Padres by the time we next speak about this in a podcast. Uh, the thing about the Padres, I talked about them a lot the way I did the the Braves and the Phillies before last season, is that they were a team that you know was on the upswing. On average, they weren't quite there yet, but when you have such a deep supply of prospects with upside – it doesn't take a lot to have a, a few pleasant surprises, a couple players come across faster than expected, and all of a sudden you have a lot of upside. And that's where the Padres are. They've played some terrific ball early. I just don't think that they're that this is really their time yet, but it could be, and that's why they're fun to watch. Now, you wrote an article on Fangraphs called Hot Leaving. Uh, as far as looking at you know, who's starting the 2019 season really well, and you had Yohan McCutcha and Eusebio as far as the top two on your list. Let's start with Yohan Mikata. Why is this a hot start that fans should believe in? Well, I, I should warn you guys that I felt the same last year, and that didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> his his weird kind of plate discipline seems to be better this year because the thing about Mikata is is when you have players that strike out a lot, usually one of two things happens: either they're obs- 
they're players with excellent plate discipline that take way too many pitches, or they're free swingers who aren't good at making contact. But Makata is this weird blend of being a patient player who swings at the pitches he's supposed to, but doesn't hit them. And that's always been a little weird. Uh, but he's making good, much better contact with those kinds of pitches this year. Uh, the power, you still look at the exit velocities, and they're still very good for a guy who can at least fake playing the middle infield. Obviously, he's not there right now, but he, he could theoretically play second base if, if the White Sox needed him to. Uh, I, I'm hopeful this time. He's a tremendously talented player, and, you know, people have been impressed with his physical tools as a prospect for a long time. I, I'm, I'm hopeful about Mancata. Now, with Carlos Rodon, are his early numbers really influenced by his FIP? I mean, his FIP before his start against the Detroit Tigers is 1.83. When, you're, when we're watching him, it doesn't appear that he's the third best starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. And according to Fangraph's war, he is. But then again, Matthew Boyd of the Detroit Tigers is the league's best starting pitcher. Uh, so it's it's very early. Well, he, he doesn't need to match his FIP, though, to be good, though. That's the thing. If you just say, oh, well, we won't trust the FIP. We'll go with the ERA. I don't think any White Sox fan would object to that, taking, what is it, like 3.2 or 3-something at the present time? Right. It's uh, just that he doesn't – he it doesn't appear that he's really dominated in any of his starts. And there are times that he may lose command and he's been very heavy on the fastball slider. But this was a conversation that Jim and I had a couple weeks ago, Dan. I feel like Carlos Rodot can make an adjustment like Patrick Corbin did last year in which you can stick with two pitches if the slider can be used in multiple ways. Do you think that Carlos Rodon could have a season like Patrick Corbin did last year just because of his pitching arsenal that he has. I think so. It was a good point, uh, which was it Jim that made it or you, that if you can use uh, a curve or a slider in the same way you can use an off-speed pitch, you can survive without explicitly having, you know, an actual thing that, you know, they'll call change up and that you throw, you know, 15% of the time. Uh, you can survive like that. Uh, Rodon's slider has always been a fascinating pitch. Uh, and I think Corbin's a good comparison maybe not quite as good as Corbin was but I mean the problem with Rodon is he's he never really gets a full season to put it all together and if he could stay healthy maybe he finally has that season uh of course it's a little bittersweet because he's going to hit free agency probably before the White Sox are good again uh but it, it it is good to see from a picture that hasn't I mean he hasn't been a bust or anything we're not talking you know Brian Taylor or anything but he just hasn't really matched up to where people hoped he'd be by now now another hot start that White Sox fans are hoping that it sticks obviously I don't think Tim Anderson is going to hit 400 for the 2019 season um, but we did have a question from one of our Patreon supporters and this comes from Hunter and Hunter's wondering, how do the splits for Anderson compare to his current slash line? Is there anything when you're looking at the other metrics that suggests that he has grown as a player? Or is this just simply a hot streak? Well, it's it's going to be a mix because uh, obviously when you look at a player who's hitting 422, they're not going to hit 422. Uh, but I don't think anyone really thinks he's going to hit 422. But, I mean, he does having a batting average on balls in play near... 500. That's totally sustainable, Dan. I do not care what you say. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I think he's, I think he's increasing, you know, the case for him being a good player, but I'm not really sure he's at, at this level yet. 
Uh, I don't think his plate discipline has really improved enough uh, to to it be super sustainable. But I mean, it doesn't like he was a bad player last year. Uh, maybe if you thought he was a league average player coming in, now you think maybe he's league average plus. But I'm, but I didn't want to write you know a whole piece of White Sox players, uh, and he's. I'm less excited about him than I am about Mankata or Rodon. Now, my last question to you regarding, and it's regarding the White Sox, looking at the projected standings right now on Fangraphs.com, the White Sox are projected to finish last in the American League Central now with 69 wins. Nice. And the Tigers and Royals would have 70, uh, which means that the White Sox are looking at possibly maybe another top five pick in next year's Major League Baseball draft. And I don't think fans are going to accept it this time around. What do the White Sox have to do to not finish behind the Royals and Tigers? And is it as simple as they need to pitch better? Well, you you could say that if they continue to have players like the ones we talked about performing better than expected, then the natural gravity of the Tigers and Royals will probably uh, cancel that out. Because I think the White Sox are probably a better team than the Royals. And I think that the Tigers, a lot of their early success is probably less sustainable than the White Sox because much of it's been based on having pitchers who aren't very good and are old having really good seasons. Uh, obviously, Matt Moore is gone for the season, but, I mean, he, he hadn't been scored on yet in his game and a half. Uh, you have, you know, Jordan Zimmerman and Tyson Ross all pitching well, uh, which isn't exactly what people expect. I, I think the White Sox are... I would personally think that they're going to finish third in the division, but not a huge, uh, but not not by a huge margin. Uh, it, it is kind of frustrating, but I don't think that the White Sox really expect to contend this year. And I know that's tough to to say to people who've been like a team rebuild for five years, but that's where they are really. Again, if you want to read more of Dan's work on Fangraphs.com, you can do so. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's at dzaborski and. It's always a very entertaining Monday afternoon when Dan is hosting his chats. If you have any questions about what's going on in Major League Baseball, anything about the White Sox, or even Chile, which is always a very popular topic. I, I was going to say Chile, too. <laughs> we talk about Chile yes, a lot. Yes, do. Again, Dan doesn't believe it's Chile if it has beans in it. Yeah, or if it's Cincinnati Chile, which is terrible. I've never had Cincinnati Chile, and I've uh, been told not to have it. Don't. It it, it, it kind of tastes like pumpkin pie filling, but it's chili. Oh, that sounds gross. It is gross. And they serve it on, on spaghetti. spaghetti. Yeah. And and they also serve it on these little hot dogs they called Coney's. And I've been – and I've had Nathan's and I'm – you know, in, in Coney Island before. And they're these little gray boiled sausages. They do not look like a Coney Island hot dog. So – it's a it's a massive fail in all all aspects. All right, so there you go. So if you have any questions about baseball or chili or even what they are called conies, again follow Dan on Twitter. He's at dzaborski. Read his work on Fangraphs.com and then join his chats on Monday afternoons on Fangraphs.com. And Dan, again as always, man, thank you for joining the show. And who knows what controversy we'll be talking about in a month. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. From now. Well, thanks for putting up with me for half an hour. And I want to thank our guest, Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs.com, again for joining the show. Now joining me on the Sox Machine podcast to help recap the White Sox and Detroit Tigers series and also help preview the upcoming series against the Baltimore Orioles is, of course, the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Uh, only three games. There was a schedule of four, but one of the games has been rained out and pushed into a doubleheader in August. But the White Sox lose two out of three. And I feel like even though this is still a rebuilding team and we don't think this is going to be a very good team, that the White Sox are still leaving games that they are that are very winnable left on the table. Do you feel the same way after this weekend? Yes. Uh, and I guess that's both a good sign and a bad sign. They're not getting blown out. We talked about it before on, on Sox Machine Live that there aren't a whole lot of low leverage outings, and that's both good and bad. They're not... Uh, you know, you'd like to see them blow, <laughs> blow teams away once in a while. And they're not quite uh, able to pile on runs in that kind of situation. And they're also not getting blown out They're They're clawing, they're clawing their way back into games uh, and making things respectable. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, uh, but they're respectable. They're also playing teams that are like them. And I've been following the over under that we talked about before about this, uh, 16 game set against rebuilding uh-huh. teams. And right now against the Royals and Tigers, they're three and three. So could go either way right now. And that's where it feels a little disappointing, right? We want to see progression. And yes, I believe that this team, the current 25 man configuration, they're always going to struggle against the Tampa Bay Rays of the league. And they're going to struggle against the Boston Red Sox. And we're going to look back later this year and wonder how do they win a series in the Bronx? But when it comes to the Royals and Tigers, at some point, they really need to start beating these teams consistently. Because I don't Mm -hmm. feel like the Royals and Tigers are equal to the White Sox in talent. Am I off on that? No, no, you're not off. I I think when it comes to the White Sox and and, and the lineup they have, uh, you know, part of it's the bottom of the order is a little bit of a mess. Uh, Sanchez is hitting better now. Uh, Angle is not. Larry at the top of the order is kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's, he swings at everything, but he's, it's been effective so far. He can't count on it being effective, his approach all the way, but it's working well enough. But really, I, I think it's that middle of the order right now with Abreu, Alonzo, Jimenez, they're all struggling, uh, to varying degrees. Uh, and I think that's where it's disappointing. The name recognition guys, the guys who are supposed to be carrying the lineup. Mankata's playing great. Anderson's playing great. Uh, but the guys who are the name brand players who have a bigger history of, or, or at least, you know, and Jimenez doesn't have the history, but he's got the the prospect stock of, of being lined up changers aren't really doing the job. So it is a little bit flat right now, the way they're coming across and uh, just the way the lineup isn't quite delivering like one through six the way it should be, or at least like two through six the way it should be. And we'll get we'll touch on that because I looked into the numbers as far as runs per inning, and I think there's something interesting that I'm noticing so far as far as trends that this team, especially offensively, we could call them a t-top offense, and I'll explain that in a moment. But I want to start with the positives out of this series, and I think Carlos Rodon and Ronaldo Lopez had good starts out of this weekend. And with Carlos Rodon, we just talked about him with Dan Saborski, Jim. Dan believes that Rodon could have a, when we discussed this before, a season very much like Patrick Corbin did 
for the 2018 Arizona Diamondbacks, which he gave up a third pitch and just stuck with the fastball slider. And it was very effective. And for Carlos Rodon, he only allowed the one run in his start against the Detroit Tigers, in which the White Sox, it was the only game the White Sox won of the series, 7-3. to three. And, you know, now he's got a sub-3 ERA. I know a lot of people don't want to believe in the FIP right now because he's not giving up a lot of home runs. But six innings, one earned run, six strikeouts, three walks. I think the question is, now I I know there are White Sox fans that want him to have Chris Sale-like starts. Go seven, go eight innings. Just completely dominate, game in, game out. I don't know if Rodon's that type of guy. But do you think that this type of performance where he goes six innings, three runs or fewer, six strikeouts, do you think he can consistently do that, Jim? I think so. Uh, I, I think he's got the... You know, I think when you're not going, you know, six, it's partially an efficiency thing, partially getting punished thing. And I think he's talented enough to where he's going to avoid the the outright disaster starts that that ultimately limits uh, a pitcher in that regard. The thing I like about Rodon and the thing that kind of keeps me away from totally believing in the Patrick Corbin approach with him, and I think Eno Saris uh, mentioned in an athletic column, he was approaching it from a fantasy aspect, talking about wins and talking about how Rodon, when he's throwing so many sliders um, you know, and, and throwing so many pitches, it, it makes it hard for him to get wins. And, and you know, wins is another way of saying you're working deeper into games and preserving a lead deeper into games, which I think has some value for a pitcher, even if wins are a bit overrated as a stat itself. And you're know, looking at this start, uh, the changeups, it seems like he's able to use that more as like a third time through thing. And I think, you know, when it works as well as it can, and it's not like a dominating changeup, but he threw 19 of them. He got five balls in play and five swinging strikes, which I think is, is better than his approach with a slider when it comes to efficiency. His slider, he threw 27 of them. Uh, he got four swinging strikes and one ball in play. He got eight foul balls, no foul balls in the changeup. And, and I think that's the kind of pitch where it might be able to be weak contact in play, or it might be able to get him up a pop-up, especially like in a bigger park. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, I, I think with the sliders, I've seen a lot, especially throwing it to righties where they, they hit the top of it and they foul it off their foot or they, you know, chop it foul, barely, you know, tip it. And while it's you know good for avoiding hard contact, uh, it does you know, drag these plate appearances to be six pitch, seven pitch affairs instead of like three or four pitch affairs. And I think that's where the changeup, where I want to see him use the changeup to keep hitters a bit honest or maybe get that weak contact in play. And so far, you know, maybe that slider, uh, given that he can throw it a few different ways, maybe he'll figure out how to, uh, you know, make it a an in-play pitch as well as a swing and miss pitch. But I think the changeup might be more effective in that regard of getting those faster plate appearances, uh, you know, going for him. Now with Ronaldo Lopez, Lopez has had good starts, back-to-back outings, at least I think so. In his Sunday start, yes, he did suffer the loss, but Ronaldo Lopez pitched six innings, allowed seven hits, three runs, two of them earned, no walks, eight strikeouts, which is a nice sight to see, 69 strikes thrown out of 105 pitches total. Are we starting to see the adjustments come from Ronaldo Lopez? And is he getting back on track in your point of view, Jim, from what we saw late last year? Yeah, I think he's there. I I think I would say he's resembled his 2018 form on the season. I don't think he's quite September uh, Lopez. I think September Lopez was a guy who could really throw his slider with conviction, with good snap to it. 
and get swinging strikes. I think right now he's he's resembling more the 2018 form. Uh, you know, maybe the first five months where he was getting by on the strength of his fastball, and he was using that as his uh, put away pitch. Uh, and and really, uh, he's getting that movement back, getting that nice riding action in on righties. That's nice to see. And, and when he's throwing with that much movement, he doesn't need to hit the mitt. <laughs> it's a good thing he's not uh, doesn't because he's not right now. Uh, I guess the question with Lopez ultimately is whether he's going to be a command pitcher or whether he's going to be somebody who can pitch backwards and, and, and throw that slider when he needs to and really hammer down on it. But right now he's like a, when he's working well, he's like a 65% fastball guy and it's not, you know, a knock on his approach. It's just more of a matter of, uh, you know, when it's not going well, whether he can find a second way to succeed. And right now I don't think he's that kind of guy, but, uh, Ultimately, if you're thinking about him as a, you know, whether he's back, I think he's back to what he was last year. And uh, that might be good enough, um, but it's not quite a next step yet. Now, the topic that I do want to revisit, and I touched on a little bit about the T-top offense for the White Sox. And I'm looking at the stat runs per inning. And for the White Sox, if you're looking at their average run scored per inning, they are very slow starters, Jim. They rank in the bottom 10th of the league when it comes to scoring runs in the first inning, the second inning, and the third inning. They're actually 28th in Major League Baseball in the third inning, averaging .21 runs a game. However, they're in the top 10 in Major League Baseball, scoring in the fourth and fifth inning, and they lead the league in runs average scored in the seventh inning. The Chicago White Sox average 1.05 runs in the seventh inning of games, and that leads Major League Baseball. They're fourth in scoring in the eighth inning, averaging .79 runs per game. So this is an offense that doesn't really get going into the fourth or fifth inning, and they have this second wave that comes in the seventh and eighth inning, which is a nice sight to see that they're taking advantage of facing a pitcher a second or third time through the order, and they're beating up on some bad bullpen arms, the first guys that are coming out of the pen. Those are good things. However, I think one of the reasons why they're 8-12, and 12, Jim, is that it does take forever for this team to get going. And as we saw on Sunday against Daniel Norris, they do nothing for six innings, then all of a sudden they score three runs and they make it a one-run game, but they just run out of time. There's just not enough outs for them to continue their offense a surge to complete the comeback. So in my opinion, while these are nice that they do well in the fourth and fifth inning and the seventh and eighth inning, I think they got to do a lot better job in the first and second inning. And I was wondering if you had any ideas on what the White Sox could do to generate offense earlier in games. Yeah, I don't really know. And I wrote about that in the recap at the top. When when you see like Tyler Glass now boss them around in the early innings or Blake Snell, you know, it's, it, it's understandable. They have great stuff and they're puzzling the league right now. But when you see Daniel Norris come up and, and Norris has baffled the Sox in the past, part of it might be a lefty thing. It's a kind of a weaker lineup against lefties right now, but uh, also, yeah, just it, it's, um, you know, part of Ricky's boys don't quit is Ricky's boys getting an early hole because they can't hit starters <laughs> and they're always true. playing from behind and like any kind of, you know, they score three runs a game, but if three or three runs show up late, it looks like they're scrappy as opposed to uh, not getting the job done in the earlier innings. Uh, I think part of it might be, yeah, I wonder if it's partially a Larry Garcia thing just because he swings at so many first pitches. Um, yeah, he's been 
part of the problem. He's been bad starting off games. He had a couple games where he's assaulted the first pitch and got on base. But I, I do wonder the lack of a traditional table setter, especially like against lefties when you have him and Tim Anderson at the top of the order. Maybe they don't see enough pitches. And so it's, it's kind of like it reminds me of uh, football when you have a, uh, a, a offensive coordinator uh, scripting the first 15 plays. And maybe the White Sox are, just make it so easy to script 15 plays against them and it takes a while for them to figure it out. But that was my, my one thought is that with Larry being so prone to two pitch at bats and, you know, especially against lefties, Anderson being up there that maybe it doesn't work out. And maybe, uh, you know, Bray, also having a really rough start contributes to that. just lack of, um, seeing pitches and, and getting an idea and passing along scouting reports. Maybe that's part of it, but, uh, yeah, that's really my only idea because we haven't seen it like this. And I guess it's good uh, that they are showing up later and, and hitting a bullpen because usually that's the whole idea of T-Top is that uh, you really want to see him later because uh, or you really want to take advantage of a starter the third time through because if you don't, the bullpen will come in and reset the clock. Right now they're not resetting the offense and, and they're able to sustain that those better at-bats against fresh pitchers. So that's kind of encouraging. But uh you know, should that somehow luck run out? You know, if, it, if they are lucky in that regard and that luck runs out, you could see a lot of, you know, one and two run performances by this offense. So uh, I would hope that, you know, and, and I think John Jay's mystery injury kind of hurts them a little bit because I think Jay was supposed to be that leadoff guy uh, against righties. And then maybe they had to improvise a bit against lefties. But with him not there and without him giving those professional at-bats that, you know, Yonder Alonso is giving the White Sox in the middle of the order, you know, even though he's not having a great season, at least he's seeing a lot of pitches. Without that, it's uh, a little bit tricky, and it seems like, you know, pitchers are able to get into, like, the third and fourth innings with only, like, 30, 40 pitches on their count. Yeah, John Jay is on the Brett Lowry. He's on the BL. Injured list. You got the IL and you got the BL. He's on the BL. He's on the BL. Yes. The BL... For those that are that do not understand, is the injured list where White Sox players go with mysterious injuries, and we never really find out what's wrong with them, and they seem to never play again. And at this moment, John Jay is in the BL. Who knows? John Jay may need his hip replaced, Jim. I don't know. <laughs> A little young for that, but yeah, just it's he's got hip dysplasia. <laughs> he is. <laughs> yeah, I mean he 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 can hit, he can throw, he can't run, and. And if you can't run, you can't play. And nobody really seems to have a good idea when that time is coming. So I know we've gotten a lot of questions on Twitter when John Jay is coming. Uh, John Jay is on the BL for right now. And it seems like they've, they've rounded it down to his leg. It wasn't in his back. That's what makes it also the BL is that it's also not necessarily one body part. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, but now I think it's being narrowed down to leg, but not right. sure. Right. With Anderson and Mikata, while these starts have been great, I think they are masking a larger problem offensively because those two have been so good and it's been so entertaining to watch them, especially offensively. But if you do look at everybody else, Jose Abreu's hitting 192, Yonder Alonso's hitting 188, Wellington Castillo's good for one thing, and that's eighth inning home runs. Uh, not even going to touch on Adam Engel because it's, uh, I don't know how it could get worse than it did last year, but it is. You say that Yomer Sanchez is hitting, which is true, but even though in his recent spurt, you look at his offensive line and you wonder why Jose Rondon's not playing more. 
Lurie Garcia has a very unique approach that's saying it nicely at the leadoff spot. I mean, out of nine guys that are in a lineup, two of them are producing consistently. And if those two go cold, I agree with you, Jim. There may be a week where the White Sox struggle two or three runs in a game if nobody else picks up. Yeah, you shouldn't need Ryan Cordell this You're right. much. <laughs> you don't need Trace Thompson 2.0 this much. Sorry, Ryan Cordell. Uh, he just reminds me a lot of what was the good year, Trace Thompson, 2014, 2015? Yeah, it was the Frazier trade. So, yeah, 2014. Yeah, that's what he reminds me right now. He reminds me of 2014 Trace Thompson, which was good. And he is producing. But you are right, Jim. They should not have to count on Ryan Cordell this early in the season. And again, I, I just believe that Anderson and Makata are great starts, but they're covering up some really ugly starts in the 2019 season. And they're no, no it's 2015. 2015. So <laughs> in case anybody's yelling at the podcast right now, 2015. Yep, so there you go. If you're yelling at the podcast, rejoice. You are correct. So, uh, but yeah, so that that's the offense. And again, something to track because again, the next 10 games are against Baltimore and Detroit at home and another series against Baltimore before the Boston Red Sox come in the first weekend of May. The White Sox should win more than half of these games, and we're going to be previewing their next series as they head to Baltimore on the road. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. A quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. The ticket industry hasn't changed in a long time. There are a bunch of big companies who have been around forever, but really don't care about making the experience easier for the customer. I've had terrible times using other third-party sites or using team sites as you get additional huge service fees tacked on to your final results or you try to use digital tickets and they don't work at the gate. I've been there and then you got to find a printer or you got to beg for will call to print your tickets. It's a terrible experience. Well, SeatGeek is a ticket company where the customer comes first. With more than 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store, SeatGeek is focused on making your experience as easy as possible. SeatGeek pulls in millions of tickets from all over the web, rates each ticket on a scale of 1 to 10, and displays them on an interactive seat map so it's simple to find what you're looking for. The green dots are great deals. The red dots stay away. Those tickets are overpriced. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And I use SeatGeek, and I have the SeatGeek app on my phone all the time to buy tickets because it's not only the easiest way I found to shop for tickets, but that fully guaranteed is such a great feature to have so you don't have to worry about your tickets being fake. And with the digital ticket policy now for White Sox games, it's really easy to bring up the QR code on your phone, quickly scan it at the gate, and it's a really easy process now to go to White Sox games. And best of all, Sox Machine listeners get $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase as SeatGeek helps support the show, so we hope you guys will support them as well. You can use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase. Again, you can use that for concert tickets, sports tickets, comedy tickets, theater tickets, whatever you need tickets for, you can use that promo code. So again, that promo code is SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. 
And for the three-game series in Baltimore, starting on Monday as the Baltimore Orioles are 8-15 and as they had a tough time against the Minnesota Twins this weekend. And again, the White Sox are 8-12. and On Monday, this is a 6.05 p.m. Central Time start for all three games, all night games, which is a nice change of pace. This game will be on WGN. It will be Manny Benuelos making his first start for the Chicago White Sox and his first start since the 2015 season with the Atlanta Braves. He'll be going up against David Hess for the Orioles, who has a 5.57 ERA and is 1-3 on the season. On Tuesday, it is Ivan Nova against Andrew Kashner. So hopefully the White Sox are able to hit Kashner as he's allowed a lot of home runs so far to start 2019. On Wednesday night, it is to be determined for Baltimore, but for the White Sox, it'll be Irvin Santana whose start was supposed to be on Saturday, but has been pushed back to Wednesday. Jim, I know you wrote about as far as this tidbit pushing back Irvin Santana, hoping to either maybe he can regain some of his lost velocity with extra days rest, or simply the White Sox are trying to push back a a potential bad start further down the road, kicking the can down the road method. Um, but again, yeah, the Orioles are 8-15. This is not a good team. They are projected to be the worst team in Major League Baseball in 2019. This is a series that the White Sox should win two out of three, if not sweep them. And if they don't win this series, then it's going to be really disappointing when they come back home for their weekend series against the Detroit Tigers. What are your thoughts with the White Sox heading to Baltimore, which I know that Camden Yards has not been kind to the White Sox the past years. Well, yeah, it should be a good opportunity for the offense to get on track. They're the Orioles have the worst pitching staff in baseball, 6.21 team ERA. Uh, Hess you know, had a, uh, he was the guy who got pulled from a no hitter uh, in the seventh inning. Uh, and then it's been three shaky to bad starts since. So uh, it, it seems like, yeah, there's, weakness all over this pitching staff and you might see some high scoring games especially like if Banuelos gets in trouble with his walks and if Santana can't figure it out but I would hope that if they're slugfests it's a slugfest both ways and Abreu gets on track and Alonzo has some moments and you know somebody else besides Moncada and Anderson really gets involved and starts uh you know finding some traction because uh yeah, if if they don't get on uh, in gear against uh, you know these opponents with better weather and everything like that, then uh, it's hard to you know count on uh, Moncada and Anderson, you know, young players like that carrying the load the way they are when they're still you know developing. And I imagine like Moncada's case, he'll uh, you know face some adjustments to his new approach, and Anderson the same thing with him. And you know they deserve some time to figure it out if they get in a slump, and uh, the offense shouldn't go in the down the drain with them if they hit a cold spell. Yeah, I agree. And like I said, we just spoke about that. It's really Jose Abreu, which I know we have some questions in PO Sox about Jose Abreu. So we'll touch on those coming up in the show, but coming up next, Jim is going to take us around the minor leagues for the white Sox in the minor league report. Welcome to the minor league report, which will benefit from the start of a couple of rehab stints. Zach Birdie and Luis Basabe will be joining Canapolis as they start their comebacks from injury. Birdie is coming off a lat strain that kept him away from all recorded games in spring training, and Basabe broke a handmate bone in February. Down in Charlotte, the Knights are benefiting from the decision to use Major League Baseballs in AAA leagues as much as any team. They lead the International League in runs scored and are second in OPS. Zach Collins is almost slugging 700 despite hitting 244. 
Nicky Delmonico and Sebi Zavala each had two homer games this week, and even Charlie Tilson is slugging over 500. The only guy not getting in on it is Danny Mendick, who has seen his average sink to 200 after finishing the week in an 0 for 15 skid. Pitching is suffering, with even Dylan Cease getting touched up in his last time out, but Ian Hamilton is starting to find a groove. He's thrown three scoreless, hitless outings in a row, with one walk and two strikeouts over those three innings. Birmingham's bats are starting to warm up after a dreadful start. Gavin Sheets kept off his week by hitting homers in back-to-back games, and Luis Gonzalez, Laz Rivera, and Mike Rodolfo are all trying to keep their averages over 200 for good. Blake Rutherford is the only one who isn't showing any signs of traction. He turned on a hanging 80-mile-per-hour changeup for his first homer of the season, but he's just two for his last 23 and batting 111 on the season. Joel Booker, on the other hand, can't be stopped. He went 3-for-4 on Sunday to give him seven multi-hit games out of his last 10. He's batting 386 at the top of the Barons' order and has six stolen bases in 15 games. The pitching is also solidified, as Jimmy Lambert has a strikeout stuff. He's fanned 23 batters to just five walks over his last 17 and two-thirds innings. Bernardo Flores continues to be his equally effective opposite. He pitched eight shutout innings earlier this week to lower his ERA to 0.56, even though he's only struck out nine batters over 16 innings. Then again, he's only had to contend with nine base runners. Cody Medeiros, who started the season on the IL, is off to a slow start. He's walked eight batters to five strikeouts over his first eight innings. He'll have time to get straightened out, but also confirms the notion that he has a reliever's profile. In Winston-Salem, Luis Robert left a doubleheader early when he aggravated a hand injury on Saturday. He missed Sunday's game, but it's hard to tell if the injury is serious or if the dash were just keeping him out of a day game after a night game for safety's sake. Of the prospects with a contact-first profile, Carlos Perez is outpacing Nick Madrigal, who finished his week going 1-for-12 despite zero strikeouts. The catcher Perez is batting 298 with a 386 OBP and has already drawn six walks this season after working just four of them over 78 games last year with Kannapolis. In good news, Lincoln Hensman came off the IL. He left his first start in the first inning with a hamstring injury, but he returned to action on Saturday and threw three easy scoreless innings. And on the subject of easy scoreless innings, Alec Hansen is up to six of them on the season. He hasn't allowed a hit in any of his four appearances either, the last of which was two innings. The White Sox intend to build him back up to a starter's profile. The Kannapolis Intimidators got Easter off, and Bryce Bush needs it. The 19-year-old's average is down to 096, with 22 strikeouts over 57 plate appearances, and 9 errors in 10 games at third base. The full-season assignment was an aggressive one, and the Sox have to make sure it doesn't turn into a counterproductive one. Steel Walker continues to be the only consistent performer, as he's hitting 333 with a 407 OBP and 556 slugging in 13 games. However, he exited his last two games early and wasn't in the lineup on Saturday. If Walker's out, at least Basabe will have room to roam. That'll do it for this week's Minor League Report. Now I'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show, where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to at Sox Machine, posting them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Machine, and helping support the show and the site by going to patreon.com slash Machine and becoming one of our friends. And we appreciate your guys' support. And of course, answering your questions this week is Jim. And Jim, the first question that we've got comes from Bill Kuhn. 
And Bill is asking, do you foresee Yonder Alonso's team option in 2020 vesting at 550 plate appearances this season? Do you think the White Sox prevent that to make room for Aloy to be the full-time DH in 2020? Well, he's on pace to. He's got 81 plate appearances over 20 games on pace for 656. Um, however, there are a, a few things. One is that uh, right now there are no natural platoon partners for him. And I think, you know, maybe if some guys get healthy and are operational, whether it's like Polka or Delmonico and you have Cordell doing okay, then maybe you can rotate more guys through the DH spot and and, uh, and pair them with righties and have Eloy go to the DH spot against uh uh, you know, lefties need be maybe, you know, Charlie Tilson comes up, maybe they can rotate the outfield around. So Eloy is more part of a DH mix, but right now there are no, um, you know, natural platoon partners for him. So he can get a head start. The other thing is that he's only hitting 188 right now and he's got a 348 slugging percentage. And if he maintains that and, and I've been kind of bearish on Alonzo since they picked him up, I think that there are some pitfalls in his plate appearances to where he can have a season where he doesn't really offer much, uh, between being shifted, having trouble against lefties, uh, hitting a lot of pop-ups that he can, you know, be a low two hundreds hitter to where, the team does want to phase him out. Um, you know, Adam LaRoche got 484 plate appearances in his disappointing season. Adam Dunn got 496. So it seems like, you know, should uh, uh, Lonzo be in this 200 hover around that uh, and be disappointing, then they will try to give him, yeah, I guess rotate him out and, you know, maybe even like Jose Rondon or Danny Mendick or, you know, these right-handed hitters who are, Looking for plate appearances, even if they're not traditional DHs, maybe they get in the mix that way. So I can see him being phased out, but you know, should he get hot um, and, and be somebody who hits 25 homers and bats 240-250 with a decent on-base percentage, he could end up coming close to that option, and then it might be a little bit of shenanigans if they try to keep him out. Uh, so I think uh, maybe I would say by late May, we might have a good idea of what exactly we're looking at here because uh, right now with how the roster is situated and how their best other DH guys or lefties, you know, whether it's Delmonico or Polka, if they're able to, to regain their form when they were successful in the majors, uh, they don't quite uh, knock them out of there. So, and, and, and should there be an injury to Jose Abreu or, uh, you know, there really is another, another first baseman there. So yeah, they could be, a little bit dangerous in that regard, but I think with Eloy, I think they're going to really try to make him an outfielder or maybe even a first baseman uh, just because with a guy that young, 22, um, he can get better in the outfield if, even if he's not going to be a good one. And I just don't think you want to relegate somebody who's not like you know Vlad Jr. to where he's not in physical shape to play the outfield. It's just more a matter of skills and reads right now and that can improve if, even if his reads really look bad right now. So... I don't think they're going to make him a DH, but I do think they might want to free up the DH spot to where they can rotate guys through if they have a lot of guys who need plate appearances and maybe more bats than spots. I can't believe you would even suggest, Jim, any shenanigans played by the White Sox when it comes to vesting options or service time. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, although <laughs> in vesting options, I, I think that tends to be... Uh, you know, service time, I think it's kind of gotten to the point where everybody kind of knows what's happening and, you know, people object and, and say it's not good for the product. It's not good for anything, but people least expect it. I think with, uh, 
with uh, plate appearances, investing options, that's where I think it becomes a bit more, there's more money on, more immediate money on the line, I think, when that happens. And so I sure. think the grievances maybe are a little bit, uh, you know, I guess, uh, on the table and, and so forth. And, and so that, that's a little bit trickier there. But I can, if he's hitting, you know, 198 or whatever, uh, when, it, when it comes to like the June and July, then I think it'll be easy enough for the White Sox to, gear down uh, Alonzo's playing time without anybody pointing fingers. Okay, but how is Yonder Alonzo going to feel about that, right? Uh, if he's hitting like uh, you know, LaRoche and Dunn did, you know, Dunn I think is extreme, but LaRoche, like say just disappointing like that, you know, he didn't hit 500 plate appearances and I saw no complaints about it. You know, just young team, rebuilding team, I think he knows what he's, you know, he got traded here, he didn't sign there, he didn't sign with any promises. So I think they can take it bats away from him to give them to younger guys who need the time. Now, if he doesn't hit 550 plate appearances, does that make him a free agent after the 2019 season? I believe so. I'd have to look it up and, and maybe I will when he, uh, between questions. But yeah, investing options mean it would be automatically picked up. I think now it's it would go to a team option. Okay. So there is the possibility that this could be mutual, that he may not want to get to 550 plate appearances when it comes to September and he doesn't want to be on a losing team? Uh, maybe, although I think he wouldn't get his salary. If he's hitting as poorly as he's playing, he would not, you know, I think it would be in his uh, interest to get a vesting option just because he would be making eight, nine million, and I don't think he'd get that in the open market if he has a season where that option doesn't vest. That's a good point. That's a good point. Hopefully, we don't have to talk about that come September, but Bill, you do bring up a very good point and something to track for the rest of the season. So great question, Bill. Thank you so much. Our next question in the mailbag comes from John Thorson. And John is asking, Jose Abreu had a bad few months last year before getting injured. He's off to a worse start this year. How concerned should White Sox fans be that he's done? I would say Dunn is overstating it. Uh, at this point, we've seen him have bad stretches. We've seen him look out of sorts, and not just last year, uh, but when he was getting you know jammed to high heaven a few years ago and, and not hitting for power and surviving on opposite field singles and looks like he was guarding too much inside and not covering the outside corner. We've seen him get his equilibrium get thrown off, and he, and he finds a way back there, especially Early in the season, I wouldn't you know consider it done. It's not a lot of fun to watch him. And and one thing to note is that baseball savant says he's one of the unluckier hitters when it comes to looking at his real stats versus his expected stats based on contact. That doesn't really pass the eye test to me. Um, and it could be the case where the expected stats have to catch up with the eye test, or maybe it could be vice versa, where there are things we're not seeing because we're not seeing results. Um, but it's just something to note and, and, and keep in mind in case uh, things do reverse. Um, but I would say with Abreu, it would probably be mid-May, uh, given his history and how he's been hot and cold before. I'd really start worrying about like long-term future implications. But I, I, I do think when with a start this bad and when he has these uh, outages for uh, extended lengths of time, it just makes it harder to feel all that inspired to extend them and really consider anything, you know, multi-year during the season. I think uh, you know, it makes it easier to wait until after the season, see what he's done for six months, see how it fits in the, in, in the uh, program going forward and, uh, and, and not really rushing into any kind of multi-year deals at this point. John, thank you so much for your question. 
Also, uh, to go back to Alonzo, yes, it would be a club option for $9 million in 2020 with a $1 million buyout. And I guess that would depend on if Rick Hahn is going to sign Jose Abreu to a new deal after this season. Yeah, that's one thing about Alonzo is if he, if he does have a good season where that option vests and, and you know, it's not like he crawls across the, 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 the plate appearance threshold, but actually deserves all the playing time and makes the most of it, it does give them one guy who can play first base and be a decent lefty bat in the middle of the order. Uh, and he does play a better first base than Abreu. I think we've seen that uh, with scoops and such that his hands are better. So there are some advantages there, but right now the way he's playing, it might be a uh, <laughs> kind of a nail biter when it comes to uh, the all-star break and, and seeing what he's projected for. John, Bill, great questions. This next question, I don't know about the quality because of who it's coming from. But this question is coming from Beef Loaf from the Section 108. And Beef Loaf is asking, Jim, love you, love your show. If the season ended today, in all caps, where is Tim Anderson on your American League MVP ballot? Probably second. Or, uh, I would say Mike Trout, number one with a bullet. Uh, he's just, you know, 506 OBP uh, is insane. Like, he just, <laughs> even if he's missed some time, just, yeah, it's... He's the best player. What is his weakness, by the way? Because uh, I've watched like half the games that he's played for the Angels, and I don't know what his weakness just is. Just missing a game here and there? <laughs> yeah, like, that's really it. Like not, not being Cal Ripken, I suppose. But yeah, that might be partially what makes him great is not having that Iron Man streak, uh, you know, nagging him, uh, weighing him down with nagging injuries. But yeah, I mean, I would say Trout number one. But then the second one, uh, you know, the silver medal is pretty open i mean you have Moncada on the white Sox. you have austin meadows off to a really good start trevor bauer probably deserves some consideration but there aren't any i think the national league right now is having the awesome performances mm -hmm. early on christian yelich uh, uh anthony rendon uh, uh, uh cody bellinger just these awesome uh you know starts with the 800 something slugging percentages the american league without you know after trout is lacking that right now so Right now, you can entertain the idea that Tim Anderson would be number two or at least top five in MVP, and that's kind of fun, even if it is 20 games. I'm trying to wonder, is Tim Anderson second in the American League in wins above replacement? I'm looking at fan graphs right now. Yeah, because on fan graphs, Christian Yelich, two wins above replacement. Cody Bellinger, two wins above replacement. We're 22 games into the season for the Dodgers and Brewers, and they're already two wins above replacement. Uh, yeah, Tim Anderson ranks second, tied second in wins above replacement on fan graphs with Austin Meadows of the Tampa Bay Rays. And then, oh, I'm sorry, they're also tied with Matt Chapman of the Oakland Athletics. So Matt Chapman, Tim Anderson, and Austin Meadows are tied for second behind Mike Trout. Great question, B-Flow. I'm sorry, I'll take that back. This was actually pretty good because I did not, <laughs> I did not know on how close that they were to Trout. I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess you can say right now, Tim Anderson would be second because he's got a better yeah, way to runs at, created plus yeah. than both Meadows and Chapman. Well, it's like when you look at the top 10 in OPS in the American League, uh, you know, Mike Trout is up top it, but then you have like a bunch of names you wouldn't expect, like Joey Gallo, Austin Meadows, Tim Anderson, Jorge Polanco, Trey Mancini, Hunter Dozier, Justin Smoke, Clint Frazier. 
Eddie Rosario, you know, it's not until you get to like, you know, J.D. Martinez at 13, Alex Bregman at 14, where you get the guys who you expect to be there. And, you know, given how they're small samples, I mean, Bregman and Martinez are hovering around, you know, 1,000 for the OPS. So, I mean, they're where they're supposed to be. They're just the hot starts right now are players who really aren't name brand players, trout aside. Yeah, Tim Anderson ranks sixth in Major League Baseball in weighted runs created plus. He's at 199, which means that he's... 99% better than league average. Oh, Mike Trout's OBP is 524 or so. 20 walks to nine strikeouts. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's insane. You know, that's insane. And then you just look at the stupid numbers that Cody Bellinger and Christian Yelich are putting up. Yelich is slugging 880 and Bellinger is slugging 852. What is going on in the National League? Christian Yelich is on pace to hit 90 home runs, Jim. And all at home, right? All at home. Yes, he doesn't have a home run <laughs> on the road. He's got seven home runs against the St. Louis Cardinals, which I think is already breaking a single season record for an opponent hitting home runs against the Cardinals. Well, it's like that's like Matt Davidson against the Royals, right? Yes. Yes, that's a good yeah, that's a good that's a good callback from last year. Oh, you know, it, even though the White Sox are eight and twelve, I have found that the start to Major League Baseball has been very entertaining. I and it was good to have Dan Zaborski to come on to shed some light on the projections, which starts are for real, which starts are not. But it's been fun, and it's been fun watching Tim Anderson, and it's been fun watching Yohan Mikata every single day. And I'm glad that the White Sox are involved in some of that entertainment. And obviously they were part of the controversy as well this week with Tim Anderson being suspended for a game. Uh, But yeah, I mean, some of these starts are just absolutely crazy and mind blowing. And when you all boil it down and look at the American league, yeah, beef loaf, you can say Tim Anderson deserves to be in the top three. And maybe he's second right now behind Mike Trout. And I don't think I would have ever believed I would say those words, that Tim Anderson is behind Mike Trout in the MVP race. (laughs) Even for a 20-game sample. Even for 20 games, yes. I don't care if it's a five-game sample. Anytime you can compare a player to how well they're playing to Mike Trout, you're doing something right. And hopefully that does continue. And uh, I don't care what anyone says, a 479 BABA is totally sustainable. <laughs> yeah, although, although the way he's playing and, and, and the contact he's making and the speed he has, you know, the, 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 I think the, the batting average on balls in play should, you know, it's going to drop, but I think it's going to be gradual. You know, it shouldn't be this kind of reckon, this luck reckoning based on his uh, skill sets and, and the way he's covering the plate better. At least that's my hope. If he can get a 360 BABA, Right. If he gets a 360 bat up, okay, and let's say that takes it directly off the batting average, Tim Anderson would be hitting 300. And a Tim Anderson that hits 300 that is racking up steals and still hitting home runs, he's got four home runs, could be a hitter that hits 25 home runs and steals 30 bags. Yeah, you can see a four or five win type of player. And who knows, Tim Anderson may be the best shortstop in the American League this year, especially with Francisco Lindor missing so many games to start the year. Yeah, and that would be basically his minor league profile applied to the majors, which a little bit simplistic, but I mean, theoretically within the possibility, I would say like maybe the uh, 80th percentile outcome, but still. You want to hear something stupid? 
Mike Trout's BABIP, 275. <laughs> He's doing all of this with a 275 BABIP. How? Oh, and he put the ball over the fence. That helps. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Just incredible. Just incredible. You know what? Somebody should just do a 60-minute podcast every week about Mike Trout and just an astonishment of everything that he does. That's why I always recommend you know going to games against the Angels. Yes. Great call, Jim. Great call. And, yeah, like I said, it's been a very fun start to the first 20, 22 games, depending on the team, to start 2019. And, like I said, hopefully Tim Anderson can continue this pace because it would be a lot more fun to talk about this, especially – when the all-star game comes up and great questions from everybody this week in PO socks. If you have a question or a topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the socks machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at socks machine, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash socks machine and help support the show and site by going to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up. There's several different tiers Our Patreon supporters get an opportunity to ask additional questions to our guests, additional P.O. Sox questions, and they also get an ad-free version of the show. And Jim also does many Patreon-written posts that our Patreon supporters can only read. We also have some awesome Sox Machine swag. We still have pint glasses. Yes. So if you would like a Sox Machine pint glass, you can sign up for that tier, follow the rules, and you will get a sweet... Socks Machine Pine Glass with a sweet Socks Machine Coaster. And again, we really appreciate your guidance and support. It goes a long way on what we achieve with the website and with the podcast. And if you do sign up, I'll be heading to Charlotte next weekend to interview players of the Winston-Salem Dash and the Charlotte Knights. And those interviews will be on the podcast. And if you have questions that you want me to ask the players, I will do that. For a Patreon supporter. So if you're interested in that, again, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up. And that will do it for this edition of the Socks Machine podcast. Again, thanks to Dan Saborski of Fangraphs.com for joining the show. And if you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, you can, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.